0: I remember, Jerry. That's because they were moving. (laughs) My memory is what I forget with. I asked my wife some time ago, I said, honey, when I'm old and forgetful, will you still love me? She said, I do. (laughs) I do. (laughs) Praise the Lord. He uses her to humble me often, as he does with Jerry. (laughs) Need that. If you take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, our focal verses will be 21 through 23, the title of the message is For Crisis of a Christian, For Crisis of a Christian, First Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 21 through 23. So then, or therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you again for this day and Thank you for our time together. Lord, thank you for who you are and the privilege to worship you. And Lord, we know worship stems out of a heart of one who knows you. And the one who knows you and your grace more and better will worship more vigorously, will worship more. We'll worship you in every way. We'll worship you in getting to know you better. We'll worship you in declaring your word to others, the gospel. We'll worship you in loving one another. We'll worship you in our giving and support of what you're doing in the world. We will worship you with every fiber of our being. We just thank you for that privilege, Lord. We just pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts now and Sift us and share your word. Speak to us, speak through us. Grant us the grace to apply to our daily lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for Crisis of a Christian um, looked up the term crisis in a dictionary. Several interesting things about that word. Defines it as a critical point or a state of affairs a crucial or decisive point or situation, a turning point, an unstable condition as in political, social, or economic affairs involving an impending, abrupt, or decisive change, an emotionally stressful event or traumatic change in a person's life, a point in a story or drama when a conflict reaches its highest Tension and must be resolved. Well, every Christian, every Christian at some time or another will suffer from one or more of four crises. One or more. Unfortunately, some Christians suffer from all four of the crises we're going to mention this morning. And we obviously don't have time to address all four. But we will mention them and define them briefly, and we'll concentrate on the second one on the list, on the second one on the list. The first crisis that many Christians suffer from is an identity crisis. Most of us don't know who we are in Christ and what it means to us to be in Christ. And identity, identity crisis, hold your place there and turn to John 15. We'll just mention these, give you food for thought and food for study in your quiet time. And that time you spend alone with the Lord, getting to know Him better, so you can be better, better able to make Him known. John 15 helps us with that identity crisis. And John 15, chapter or verses 1 through 11, tell us that as a Christian, now that I am a Christian, I have four things that I did not have one second before becoming a Christian. I have a new position, a new position. That passage identifies that as in Christ, in Christ. Verse 4, abide in me. Uh, verse 5 he who abides in me over and over some six times in that passage God tells us of our new position our new position where we are now that we have come to Christ we have a new position biblically our old position according to 1 Corinthians 15 22, was in Adam says as in Adam all die so in Christ shall all be made alive. So we now have a new position. And the most important thing about you is where you are, not necessarily who you are, but where you are, in Christ. That makes everything else about you as a Christian true. Because you are in Christ, a new position. This passage also tells us about our new possession, Christ in me. So if he abides in me and I in him, verse 5 tells us. So we have a new possession, Christ in us. Not only are we in him the moment we're saved, but he is also in us. It's like having a sponge and dropping it into a bucket of water. The, The sponge is in the water, but the water is also in the sponge. So now as a Christian, I have a new possession, Christ in me. This also tells us about uh, our new product, fruit. Fruit. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And then down in... Verse 8, it said, My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So there, our new product is fruit, and there are four different levels of fruit bearing. There's no fruit, fruit, much fruit, and more fruit in that passage. So we are to bear fruit. Notice we are not to produce fruit. We are to bear it. We are to bear it. So that's our new product. And then finally, it tells us about our new purpose and that is to abide, he that abides in me. In other words, we are to keep the contact intact. That is the abiding life that the Lord desires so earnestly for us to have, the abiding life, keep the contact intact. So that is our identity, our identity. Um, Most Christians suffer from an identity crisis. Nobody's ever taught us those things. So we struggle with that. Secondly, we, most Christians, suffer from an inventory crisis. An inventory crisis. And we'll say more about that one. That'll be our focal point this morning. Thirdly, many Christians suffer from an interpersonal crisis. An interpersonal crisis. Now, how many have ever been led on a study of the one another passages in the Bible. The one another passages. We are to love one another, rebuke one another, encourage one another, prefer one another. You see, there are 58 occurrences of that phrase in the New Testament, how we are to relate to one another. And if you consider the synonyms to that, they're limitless in the Bible. Even our passage The typical focal passage on prayer, Luke 11, Jesus instructs us to to pray and ask God to forgive us as we forgive those who have sinned against us. So the synonyms for that are limitless in the Bible, and we are to understand how to relate to one another. Fourth. We have an involvement crisis, and this is huge, huge in the body of Christ. An involvement crisis. You know, most of us uh, don't understand how we're to be involved, how we're to be involved in the work of Christ, how we're to be involved in the cause of Christ, in the global cause of Christ, in the local cause of Christ. Most of us don't have a clue what that's about when we come to Jesus Christ, and many of us don't have that, a clue about that many years after we've come to Christ. You know, the starting point is obviously the Great Commission. It is the marching orders for every individual follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to go into all the world and preach the Gospels to all creation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things which I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Most of us don't understand what that means. We've turned it into a foreign missions text. And we think it's only for the missionary. The Great Commission is to be a lifestyle for every Christian, every believer, every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to be our mission statement, our marching orders. It is what we do. It is who we are. We are representatives of the King. And it's interesting, Robert Coleman, in his book, The Great Commission Lifestyle, and, and, and yeah, I'm plugging that, so get it, get it today if you don't have it. It's a wonderful, wonderful book, Great Commission Lifestyle. He has another one um, that, that is awfully good, also. Um, here's what he said about the Great Commission. Quote, whatever does not contribute to its fulfillment is an exercise in futility. End quote. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Whatever does not contribute to the fulfillment of the Great Commission is an exercise in futility. It really is. I gravely fear that when we stand before the Lord at the, the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, where we're there to receive award and a reward, and every Christian will receive a reward. Praise the Lord for that. Some will receive, receive greater than others. That's just kind of the way the economy of God works. <laughs> okay. Uh, and you can research that for yourself. I didn't write it. Uh, <laughs> but every Christian will receive a reward, and, and I gravely fear that he'll stand in front of us and hold up the Great Commission and say, what did you do with this? What did you do with this? How many disciples did you make? What did you do with this? I gravely fear that that will be the, the measuring stick. I don't make that any argument, but read the, read the book. It's there. So most Christians have an involvement crisis, don't realize how we are to be involved in the cause of Christ. And as a result of that, many of us have a bad sense of self-worth. As Christians, as children of the king, as children of the king of kings, many of us have a bad sense of self-worth because we don't know how we're to be involved. Now, let's zero in on... The second one of those, the inventory crisis. Inventory crisis. And I want to make a blanket statement. Hidden in the gospel is an often overlooked truth. Only rich people can afford to be Christians because Christianity is very expensive. I want to say that again. Only rich people can afford to be Christians Because Christianity is very, very expensive. Now, what is the immediate problem we instantly have with that statement? What's the first thing we think of when we think of rich? Money. Money. Yeah. Money. Money. Well, quite frankly, money is the least of the riches that we have. The least of the riches. Money is just a tool. That's all. It's the least of the riches that we have. The greatest riches in the world don't involve money at all. Relationships, love, time don't involve money at all. So the greatest riches that we have in life are totally outside the realm of finance, totally outside that, But you see how our culture has conditioned us to think. Well, we need to correct that. We need to go back to the book. True riches are the truths that the gospel holds. Therefore, one needs to be rich to be a Christian because being a Christian is very, very costly. Or you might say, only rich people can afford to have friends because friendship is very expensive. Or... Only rich people can afford to be faithful because faithfulness is very costly. Or only rich people can make disciples because making disciples is very, very costly. Very costly. So we had better be sure of our inventory or we're going to be weighed and measured and found wanting. We need to know what we have in Christ. Let's look at the passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21 says, So then, that's the NAS. I used to keep, teach from King James, Roger, but since people don't speak that way, I had to change a few years back and teach from translation with more modern English. King James says, therefore. <laughs> okay. And when you see the word therefore, you need to find out what it's there for because it's therefore a reason. And the reason here is, is he is capsuling what has gone before. He's capsuling what has gone before. And part of what was gone, has gone before is back in verse 18. He says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Wow. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So one of the reasons that we don't know what we have in Christ is we don't have a proper estimation of ourselves. Some of us think we're a little wise, too wise for what's in this book. Uh, Proper estimation of ourselves and a proper estimation of others. We lack that as well. So those are a couple of reasons that we don't know what our inventory is. Now, be reminded that this letter that we're reading from from was written to the most carnal church in Paul's day. They were also the most gifted church. Can you imagine that? The most gifted church, the spiritual gifts were more alive and active in the church at Corinth then in any other church, you can find that in, in chapter 1, verse 7, where he says, you, you lack nothing in gifting. You come behind in no gift. There's my King James again. Uh, you come behind in no gift. So this was the most gifted church that Paul wrote to, and yet they were also the most carnal church of his day. They were saved people, but their entire attention was focused back on themselves, back on themselves, and they had a significant problem that Paul zeroes in on right here at the beginning of the letter. Uh, Every chapter in 1 Corinthians was written to address a problem, every last one. For example, chapters 1 through 4 were written to address division, division in the church, Chapter 5 was written to address immorality. Chapter 6 was written to address legality. Christians taking one another to court. Paul said, don't you Christians know that you're going to judge angels and you can't judge little matters, human matters, among yourselves? You're taking it before some pagan judge. Chapter 7 was written to address specific problems in marriage. Chapters 8 through 10 was addressed Written to address questionable things, uncertainty. Chapter 11 was written to address public worship. Chapter 12 through 14, spiritual gifts. Chapter 15, immorality. And chapter 16, giving, monetarily giving. You say, oh, is he going to start talking about money? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Not today. Not today. Uh, Well, I really wanted to today, but not today. (laughs) Not today. God willing, someday, but not today. But chapters 1 through 4, the longest section was written to address the problem of division in the body. Division. It appears even before immorality. The reason that is so important is when the church is divided, then it will not address any other weighty matters in the body. It just won't address those. So four chapters were dedicated to the problem of division in the church. Now, what were they divided over? Chapter, verse 21 says, Therefore... Or, so then, let no one boast in men. The tense of the verb there in Greek is stop. Stop doing this. Stop glorying or boasting in men. And there Paul put his finger on the big, big problem of the Corinthian church and their carnality. They were divided over preacher popularity. Divided over preacher popularity. Now... Hopefully, we don't have that issue here. <laughs> hopefully, we don't. And so hopefully, this is simply preventative. Doc, that's, that's a big deal. Prevention. So hopefully, this is preventative. If it's not, apply it. <laughs> okay. But they were divided over preacher popularity. Hold your place there and t- flip back to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, verses 10 through 12, and we'll get Paul's statement of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I have Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So the issue was a division over preacher popularity. Preacher popularity. Now, there are a couple things that we should never do with regard to another person. First, we should never belittle another person. That should never happen. That should never, ever happen. True righteousness never belittles another person. You can tell the difference between true righteousness and faked or parlor righteousness by how you feel in its presence. By how you feel in its presence. So we should never belittle another person. Secondly, we should never boast in another person. We certainly should affirm them in order to build them. And we should do that constantly. Constantly. Affirmation. We should do that. Now, what are we to boast in? We are to boast as Christians. Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24. Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24. Can we get that? For the sake of time. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus saith the Lord, I'm not reading it, I'm quoting it, (laughs) King James again. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the strong man in his might, nor the rich man in his riches, but let he who boasts boast in this, that he knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising wisdom and righteousness and loving kindness in the earth. For in these things... I delight, declares the Lord. So we are to boast in the fact that we know the Lord. That is to be our boast, that we know him, that we have that relationship with him. Another verse, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Verse 19, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul's writing to the Thessalonian disciples, said, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. That word exaltation in the original language is the word for boasting, boasting. So two things we are to boast in or are to be joyful about and openly proclaim is one, that we know the Lord Jesus, and secondly, in our disciples. Skip down the page at chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 8. Paul says, for now we really live if you stand fast in the Lord. So he wasn't focused on himself. He was focused out toward them because they had the potential for multiplication and multiplying the cause of Christ in the earth. So we are to affirm them. We are to boast in the the fact that we know the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we had here was a division in the church because of preacher popularity And the the text we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that word division is actually the Greek word schisms. The church was schismatic. They were divided over preacher popularity, and it had gotten public. Because he said, all of you are involved in this. So it had spilled outside the church and had gotten public, widespread. Here were the four divisions. You had one group that liked Paul. Those were primarily Gentiles. Then you had one group that liked Apollos. Those were probably the Greeks. Then you had a group who liked Peter. Those were probably the Jews. And then you had another group that said, I'm not going to follow any man. I'm just going to follow Christ. What they said was fine. Their spirit with which they said it was wrong. See, so they set up an exclusive clique inside the church centered around Jesus Christ, and they rejected everybody else. So the body was divided. And what they're basically saying, it was prideful arrogance. They said, we're more conformed to Christ than you. And that's a division of the church. Now, it was a division over preacher popularity. Paul was a smart one. You know, great theologian. He would go into flights of theological soaring and, and the various epochs of, of the anti antediluvial generation. I mean, this guy could flow. He was way out there, okay? And then you had a group that liked Apollos because he was a silver-tongued orator, top-drawer oration. I mean, this, this guy could lay it down, could weave it verbally, And then you had Peter. He was like Brother Jerry. He's a take the bull by the horns kind of guy. Let's get with this right away. And there were those that favored him. So you had people divided over preacher popularity. Do we have anything in the body of Christ like that today? (laughs) Three things happen when the church is divided. And you can see that back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, three things happen. Um, There's a dividing of the person of Christ himself. In verse 13, he says, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? So we divide Christ himself when the church is divided. Why? Because the church is his body. We are his body. And when we divide, he's divided. Secondly, there's a degrading of the passion of Christ or the death of Christ. Again, in verse 13, Paul said, was was Paul crucified for you? And Paul's addressing the crowd that really, really liked his preaching right there. He's scoring them, making himself the example, telling them, I want nothing to do with that division. I won't be part of that. The third thing that happens is there's a deterioration and the participation in Christ, verse 13 again, were you baptized in the name of Paul? So there were three things that happened when the church is divided. A dividing of the person of Christ, a degrading of the passion of Christ, and a deterioration of the participation in Christ. Again, he devotes four chapters to that issue. Now back to our text, and let's see his remedy for that. The remedy. It's a strange, strange remedy. Verse 21. So then let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, or all things belong to you. Now, how many of us would ever think to answer a problem of church division with that answer? (laughs) Very, very strange answer he gives. You see... When a believer has an inventory crisis, every problem that believer has will arise from that inventory crisis. Every problem he has. If I don't know who I am, I have an identity crisis. Problems will arise from that. If I don't know what I have, problems will arise from that. If I don't know what I'm worth in Christ, problems will arise from that every single time. If I am constantly, if I believe that I'm a nobody, I will constantly be parading myself to try and prove that I am somebody. You see? So problems arise when we don't know these things about ourselves. And that's tragic. Tragic. You know, if you stop the average Christian... Anytime during the week and ask him, who are you in Christ? Most of them can't answer that question. What do you have in Christ? Most of them can't answer that question. Tragic. Trafficking God's court week in, week out, listening to preaching, teaching of God's word, hopefully studying it during the week, or at least reading it, and we don't know those basic things about ourselves. And as a result, we have all these problems, problems. Many of you my age uh, are familiar with the military draft. Younger folks don't know much about that, but uh, when the military needed soldiers, they drafted people or won (laughs) people. Today it would be more described as winning because now they recruit you. They lay out these benefits that uh, you can realize by being a member of the U.S. military, okay? And they win you to the military. But interesting enough, if they win 200,000 soldiers, they don't immediately send those soldiers out to the battlefield. no. They train and equip those soldiers. They send them to basic training to start with, and then they send them to advanced individual training, or AIT, to develop their individual skills, their their individual chosen field of service, and then they send them, those who were won and then trained and equipped, out confidently into battle. That's exactly what Jesus did. That is exactly the same for a Christian. Jesus doesn't depend on those who are one. He depends on those who are built. Those who are trained and equipped. And your training will automatically determine what you do. How you live. How you respond. How you react. You know, one of my guys is... A, a uh, Swatera Township police officer, Jason Umberger. He's a deputy chief over there now. And uh, he was telling me some time ago about a problem that they were having uh, among police officers. And they, uh, they investigated this, uh, this issue. Uh, the The National Policemen's Association investigated this and they found that a lot of officers were were getting killed in gun battles, and they couldn't figure out why, so they investigated it, and they traced the problem back to their training. In training, they were required, as soon as you have fired your weapon and that clip is spent, then before you reload and continue to fire, you must police up the brass, pick up the brass casings, And they found that this was so ingrained in their minds and their training that in the midst of a firefight, police officers were stopping to police up the brass and were losing their lives because of that practice. So they had to change that practice or that part of the training program to assure that that wasn't ingrained as second nature in what they were doing when they were firing a weapon. Well, you see, that's exactly the way a disciple must be trained, a believer must be trained, must become second nature for him to result back to his training in times of ministry needs or in times of crisis in his own life. Second nature to go back to that training when they're confronted in combat, and you will be confronted if you name the name of Christ you can count on that. You don't have to go looking for it. It'll find you. <laughs> I promise you that. So Paul's answer to the church about division was a basic proposition. A basic proposition. He says all things are yours. 1 Timothy 6:17 tells us that God has given us richly all things to enjoy. Now, if you are only thinking about money, then you're going to miss that. You're going to miss the greatest riches that God has given us to enjoy. All things are yours. You have to have the proper spiritual lens fitted over your eyes and the proper filter over your ears to see that. Erwin Lutzer, who you've heard pastor talking about, and you've heard Jonathan Zabolski talking about, he attended his church there in Chicago, Moody Memorial, wrote a book entitled, You Are Richer Than You Think. You're richer than you think. And among other things, this book explores the riches that we have in Christ. Wonderful, wonderful book. I'm plugging books this morning. Uh, Romans 8.32 says, If God spared not even His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not also with Him freely give us all things? So in other words, if God gave us the, the Christmas gift, the gift that bankrupt heaven, will He not also give us the wrapping paper and the string? Giving us richly all things to enjoy. I'm reminded of a book by David Howard entitled Declare His Glory, and he told the story of a friend of his who had earned two undergraduates' degrees, a master's, and a doctorate, all from the same California University. And his friend had followed the leading of the Lord and was living in the jungles of South America evangelizing an unreached people group, an unreached tribe. And this California University was going to celebrate its 100 year anniversary. And to do so, it was going to publish a book of the accomplishments of its most celebrated graduates. And the mail came that day, and, and, and maybe some of you have seen this. The mail is, is dropped by a parachute. You know, you have this little crop duster plane that flies over the village and buzzes the village to get everybody's attention. And then it comes back, and down comes a little parachute, and that's the mail. Okay? Literally, that's how (laughs) you get it. And uh, and it was this letter to his friend uh, wanting to publish his accomplishments as one of their celebrated graduates. And here were several, several of the questions. First, number one, do you own a home? He thought back to the day when he and his friend had built a two-room house out in the jungle for $100, so he checked yes. (laughs) Do you own two homes? His first reaction was no, but then he remembered Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am you may be also. So he checked yes. (laughs) Third, do you own a boat? He looked out to the river and looked at the 40-foot-long boat that he and his friends had hollowed out of a log and put a motor on it, so he checked yes. So you plan to travel abroad this year. And he remembered he and his family were to go on furlough to the U.S. that year, so he checked yes. (laughs) The final question was, what is your annual salary? He searched down the list of suggested salary figures, which began at $200,000. He couldn't find one to match his tiny missionary quota, so he drew a line at the bottom and entered his tiny missionary quota of $25,000 a year. And he told David, he said he was headed to the West Coast when he was on furlough and he couldn't wait to visit his alma mater to see what his answers had done to the school's computers. (laughs) 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 See, the point is, is Mr. Howard's friend was filthy rich in the riches that matter. And those truths and word of God and following God, his choice. So that's what a Christian is to be like. All things are yours. Next, Paul gives a blessed proof. Third, a blessed proof. What is our negotiable currency? Go back to our text. And this is going to shock you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 22, he says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or things... Or, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All things belong to you. All things belong to you. So this is an itemized list of eight things that Paul gives that we have as Christians. All things belong to you. And you we find that this is not a human standard of all at all. This list is broken into four categories. I'll give them to you quickly. Number one, all true communicators of the gospel are yours. All true communicators of the gospel are yours. I didn't say everybody that claims to be a preacher. Didn't say that. Didn't say everybody that claims to be a pastor. Because there are preachers and pastors that are teaching outright heresy. This morning as we speak. Right this morning in this area, there are, are men standing in pulpits that are plying their trade. And their trade is not this book making merchandise of the people right this morning. All true communicators of the gospel are yours. The created world, number two, belongs to you. The third category, all conditions of existence belong to you, whether life or death. Fourth, all circumstances of time belong to you, things present or things to come. Quickly, one at a time, all true communicators of the gospel belong to you. Now that tells you how we ought to go to church. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse nineteen says, Quench not the spirit, and despise not prophesying or preaching. It's forth telling, not foretelling. It's truth saying, not sooth saying. There's a difference. Okay. Despise not Declaring forth the word of God. When the word of God is declared, we should give our whole heart and mind to his wonderful word. That tells us how we ought to go to church. Not thinking about who's preaching today. Not zeroed in on that, but zeroed in on the fact that God is going to speak through somebody today at our church. And I have no spiritual options until God has spoken, so I want to be there to hear what he's got to say. Man, that's big. (laughs) You see, if you do something for God without Him speaking, that's religion. God hates religion. I mean hates it. The most religious people this world has ever known lived in the sanctuary every day, read the Word of God every day, seriously, meticulously, trying to apply it to their daily lives, expanded on it, so they added to it, and they murdered the Son of God. They were the scribes and Pharisees. So we ought to go to church with the purpose in mind of hearing from God. Hearing from God. Now, what does the carnal person say? Well, you know, I just don't like his mannerisms. You know, that thing he does with his mouth you think I'm kidding. I talked to a person that told me that about Terry Zabulski. (laughs) I said, you know, you have a respect for the word of God. Why'd you leave grace? Because They were here before I came here. Uh, His wife was one of my disciples. I said, why'd you guys leave grace? And his wife said, you know, I I just, that thing he does with his mouth. (laughs) So help me. (laughs) I said, that thing he does with his mouth is speaking forth the word of God. (laughs) That should have been what you were zeroed in on. I think that thing he does with his mouth is kind of cool. But... (laughs) (laughs) But all (laughs) he's gonna hear this, I know. But but all true communicators of the gospel are yours. That's what that was Paul's answer to this problem. Another thing, the created world belongs to you. The created world belongs to you. It's also in verse twenty two. Whether Paul or Cephas or the world, the created world, is cosmos, the created world, all things in their tiniest parts belong to you. The world is here because you're still here as a Christian. When you leave, this world's in trouble. When we're out of here, there's going to be problems because the Holy Spirit will be taken out of the way and there won't be anything to constrain evil any longer. This world's in big trouble when we go. Big, big trouble. So the created world belongs to you. We quoted Romans eight thirty two. Also, Colossians two three. In whom, in him, in Christ, are hid all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So the world belongs to you. Third, all conditions of existence belong to you, whether life or death. Now we hear that that life belongs to us, and man, we reach out and grab it, and we just wring it out, and we squeeze it for all that's there. We love that. That's wonderful. But when it says death belongs to you, we're like, ooh. What about that one? Well, death is that vehicle that brings you into the very presence of the Lord. It's the ultimate healing. Did you know that? The ultimate healing for the Christian is death. Brings him into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have life. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay? I am the way, not one way among many, not the better among several. The way, the truth. So truth is not a proposition to be adhered to. Truth is a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. I am the truth and the life. In other words, you should be satisfied just with Him. He is your very life. He is not a part of your life. You see those bumper stickers that says, God is my co-pilot. He don't want to be your co-pilot. Man, he wouldn't ride with you if you had the wheel. (laughs) No, he wants to drive. He didn't come in to take sides. He came in to take over. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if you're a believer, you have the life in you. And then Psalm 23, verse 4 says... Yea, though I walk through the shadow of the, the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. So death does not excite the Christian in a negative way. If he understands what he has, if he understands who he is, if he understands where he is, then death is the limousine that delivers him to the Lord. Next, he says... Death and life belong to you. And then he says, things present or things to come. Things present and things to come. So all circumstances of time belong to you. And that's Romans 8:38. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor powers, nor principalities, nor height, nor death, nor any other creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's reason to celebrate for me. All circumstances of time belong to you. And then finally, there's a balancing premise. That was a blessed proof. Now there's a balancing premise. And this gives validity to all the rest. It's in verse 23. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. God you belong to Christ. We don't have time to go into them but for your notes 2 Corinthians 10:7 Galatians 3:29 Romans 14:8 1 Peter chapter 3 says you were not redeemed with corruptible things but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So you're his. You're his. You belong to him. He purchased you. He redeemed you from sin and from destruction. And that is the balancing premise of all of this. And as a result of that, we ought to love him. As a result of that, we ought to serve him because love is something you do. It's not a feeling, it's something you do. That's the devotion that we should have to Him, that our lives, our very lives, belong to Him. So there's the balancing premise. Second Corinthians 5:18 and 19 says, "All things are of God, who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ." And I might add, it says He has given us the ministry of reconciliation so he saved you because he loved you and then he gave you something to do gave you something to do our inventory in Christ Jesus who we are where we are what we have is all crucial to us as believers that we can represent the Lord Jesus Christ There's a basic proposition all things are yours. A blessed proof that lists some of our riches. The balancing premise we belong to Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then everything you have belongs to Him, everything you are belongs to Him. Our most precious possessions, our families, Children, grandchildren, all belongs to him. At any time, he can require those of you. Whatever shallow you think you have, all belongs to him. All of it. At any moment, he can require that of you. A Christian is to live with those things loosely in his hands. Always loosely in his hands. Understanding that at any time, God could require those. At any time, God can impress upon his heart to give that up. That's the way we are to live at all times. Our inventory, we are lavishly rich in the riches that matter, the riches that really, really matter. And God will take care of the rest. He always does. Oh, well, he may not give you everything you want. Paul said, My God will supply all your needs. Not all you want, so forget about the Lamborghini. <laughs> according to his riches. Not out of, don't miss that, according to his riches. If he gave you out of his riches, you still might be abjectly poor. But according to. According to. And if I had a rich friend and I had a project that cost $20,000 and I went to him and said, I got this wonderful thing I want to do for $20,000, and he writes me a check. For $10, he gave me out of his riches. But if I went to him and he wrote me that check for $25,000, he gave me according to. Paul says, My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. And he owns it all, all of it. It's all his. Our inventory in Christ. Can we stand?